0: story is told of a couple who got lost while driving in the country they spotted a farmer working in his field and they pulled over to ask directions to their intended destination and the farmer scratched his head and thought for a very long time and finally he looked at the couple and in all sincerity said I'm sorry but you can't get there from here now, the humor in this antidote is that the farmer is the farmer's failure to acknowledge that he just lacks sufficient knowledge to properly direct the couple to their destination. But there are, indeed, destinations you cannot reach from the road that you're on. There are times when the only answer is, you must turn around. You must go in an entirely different direction than you are presently taking. And this is essentially the message of the Bible to sinners. There is a way to God and forgiveness of sin, but you must turn around. Over the past few weeks, we've considered the biblical revelation of our inherent sinfulness that corrupts us to the core of our beings and predisposes us to love idols in place of God, who alone is our soul's joy. Last week, we then looked at the good news, the news that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of sin, such that all who by His grace place their confident trust in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ are reconciled to God and forgiven. The proper response of sinners to this message of good news is, in a phrase, to turn around, or what the Bible refers to as repentance. This uh, will tend to be a bit academic in some respects in this delivery, but I think there's some information that we need to inculcate and understand, but I ask that you think of it not simply as facts that are in front of us here, and I will put some on slides as not so much our custom, but to do so that we might be able to sit down in these truths and in these thoughts. But as we do, let's remember what is at stake here. Let's remember the way in which God has found us and the repentance that He has brought to our hearts as believers and for anyone with us who may not know Christ as Savior. I appeal to you to consider this very vital theme of repentance. It is vital for each of us. As we look at the meaning of repentance, let's start there. What does it mean, actually? We may have something of a fuzzy idea in our mind, but what does the word repentance mean? It comes from two Hebrew words which convey this concept in the Old Testament. The first is naham, which means literally to pant or sigh or groan. Now that isn't the definition that we'll gather because in ethical context it speaks of the sorrow of heart that one has over a course of action. But even this idea of panting or sighing gives us this idea. Now it's usually this word actually used mostly of God. God who repents, for instance, that he made man in Genesis 6. A second word in the Hebrew is the word shuv, which means simply to turn. Turn. When used in ethical context, it refers to a fundamental shift of orientation, leading one to forsake sin and return to fellowship with God. This is the term that you will read often in the English text, translated turn or return. It's often used by the prophets. As you read through the Old Testament, you'll usually be reading that word shuv. Used to call Israel to turn from her sin and to return to the Lord. We build the meaning of repentance also on three Greek terms, the first being epistrepho. It's the virtual equivalent of the Hebrew shuv and means to turn oneself around. In an ethical context, it speaks of turning the will towards a new and opposite goal, writes Voss. A second word, metanao, conveys a decided change of mind that includes the will and affections it is a change of mind that leads a person to abandon one course for another, or to turn around. A third word, metamelomai, is a more emotional term, describing a feeling of care, concern, or regret. Sometimes this word describes mere remorse. Feeling sorry that one has suffered the consequences of sin. This is where Judas is, and it's important for us to engage here and remember the account of Judas who repented of his sin of betraying Jesus. But he repented not in a sense of finding grace from God, but repented simply in feeling sorrowful. But it speaks in that place, this Greek word, of that sorrow of feeling that one has done wrong. Ideally, it describes the emotion of contrition and regret for sin. So taken together in their biblical context, as we put these words together, what is the meaning of repentance? What is the meaning that is in your mind as you consider this biblical truth? To state it simply, repentance is a fundamental change of heart that leads one to willingly turn away from sin and to choose God's way. It is secondly, or we could say secondly, repentance is, to state it differently, a reorientation of the soul that renounces sin and turns to God for saving grace. Now let's think of these biblical themes that we've been considering over the past weeks. The first is this, the Bible stresses the idolatrous lawlessness that characterizes our natural state of alienation from God. To the core of our being, we are all sinners. That's theme one. A second theme of Scripture is, as the Bible reveals, the good news that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners and rose again, such that those who place their trust in Jesus alone are saved from God's wrath. Now, bringing these two themes together, as we have over the past few weeks, sin, and the grace of God and the good news, these two themes converge in the sinner's heart at the point of repentance. What the Bible calls repentance is itself a major theme of Scripture. Our response to the knowledge of our sinfulness, our response to the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, are crucial And that response we could put over at the banner of repentance. This is no small theme in Scripture. As we note the proclamation of repentance, we find it throughout Scripture. And here I'd like you to join me as we turn through New Testament text beginning with the first New Testament book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. And we note here this message of repentance in the ministry of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist was chosen by God to prepare the way for Messiah's presentation to Israel. The essence of the ideal message, this forerunner of Messiah preached to Israel. Think of it in those terms. This is an ideal message, preparing for Messiah. What does he preach? Matthew 3 and verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Here's his message. Summarized, obviously he said much more and filled in the idea, but here is the basic gist of his preaching. Verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the heart of the message that prepared people to receive Messiah was a message of repentance. This heartfelt change abandonment of sin, and embrace of the way of God. This is John's message. Now when Messiah came, his message linked seamlessly with the preparatory word of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Matthew 4 and verse 17. From that time... After Jesus' preparation, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It doesn't take a whole lot of gray matter, does it, to put those two together. What John the Baptist is preaching is preparation for precisely what Jesus will preach, and it is a message of repentance. Again, both of the messages being summarized for us here. Let us turn to Luke chapter 5. As we go to another statement on on Christ's preaching, in Luke 5, Jesus defended his ministry before critics. Remember what people were saying? You spend too much time with sinners. It must mean that you are a sinner, because that's where you're spending all your time. What was Jesus' reply? Luke chapter 5 and verse 31, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, notice what he says, in keeping with his message, I Have not come to call the righteous, let's read that as, I have not come to draw the self-righteous, those who are content in who they are, but sinners to repentance. This is Jesus' message. Jesus defined his mission on earth as one of calling sinners to repentance. The target that he was driving at was to convince sinners to abandon their sin and to embrace the saving grace of God in Messiah. This mission was not only Jesus' task while on earth, he made it clear that he intended to carry forth his mission into all the world through his followers. As far as we know, the fastest thing Jesus ever was on was a donkey. He was not going to go through the entire world on his own. True in one sense. Not true in another sense. That it is through his body, the church of Jesus Christ, that he will go into all the world and preach what? Luke chapter 24. It really should be no mystery to us as we link these ideas together. But Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Luke 24, verse 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, and everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He is risen here. He is about to ascend. And then he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now I'd like us to hone in there at verse 47 to that phrase, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Remember the linkage between John's message of repentance to Jesus' message of repentance, and now a message that Christ's followers will take into all the world of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins, I don't think, are two distinct messages. They are, as we use that beautiful analogy, the two sides of the same coin, Repentance is the turning away from sin to embrace the forgiveness of sins that's in Jesus Christ. So the message of repentance that John preached was preached by Jesus and was to be preached by His disciples. He commissions them with the same. Now some Bible interpreters argue that the message of repentance was limited to the Jews. It's really difficult to understand why anyone would even say this, but if perhaps you've heard that or been instructed along those lines, Jesus does not call his disciples to go into all the world and to preach the message of repentance to all the Jews who are in all the world. He calls them to preach the message of repentance to all nations. And this is precisely what the apostles of the risen Christ consciously preached. We see this so clearly in their message, Acts chapter 2. In the first public evangelistic sermon following Jesus' ascension, Peter preached to a multitude of pilgrims who were celebrating Pentecost at Jerusalem. And you know the conclusion of his message. We've considered it often. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, right at the climax of this sermon concerning the death and resurrection, remember, he's telling these people what has just happened that Jesus has died, that he has risen from the dead, that God has shown his approval of what Christ has accomplished in fulfillment of prophecy. And at the end of that message, 2.38, Peter said to them, what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Did you see the phrase, repent and forgiveness? Once again, just what Jesus told them to preach. Repentance and forgiveness. They re- preach those two sides of the one coin, salvation in the name of Christ. This is the message. So Peter is obviously parroting Jesus here, and there's the linkage between the two. Chapter 3, we find Peter preaching in the courtyard of the temple. Verse 18, verses 18 and 19, he again sounds this theme of repentance and forgiveness. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled, repent therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance, metenaeo, and turn, epistrepho, those two of those Three Greek words. And that your sins would be blotted out. Just another way of saying that you would be forgiven of your sins. In Acts 4, Peter finds himself in a heap of trouble. And he comes before the Jewish authorities for continuing to preach the message about Jesus crucified and risen. But before the Jewish council of elders, Peter is confronted with his disobedience to them. And he says what we must obey God rather than men chapter 5 and verse 28 they strictly charge him you are not you are not to teach in his name yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us but Peter and the apostles answered we must obey God rather than men The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now he's preaching again. Notice the content of his sermon. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. You see the linkage again with exactly what Christ had said to him repentance and forgiveness of sins. In this message of repentance, we ask the question, as Peter puts it here, is it only for Israel to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins? He says it here, I don't think that's the point at all. The point is that he's talking only to Israelites here and that it is to the Jew first but also to the Greek, and we see that in the ministry of Paul as he stands before pagan Gentiles in Athens, Acts chapter 17. Speaking to pagan Gentiles here, we hear the very same message that Peter is proclaiming to the Israelites, Acts chapter 17 and verse 29. Paul preaches, being then... God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here's the death and the resurrection of Christ proclaimed to Gentiles who are called to repent, to respond to this message. To the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, Paul summarizes his ministry among them with these words. Chapter 20, The middle of verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. What is he teaching? What is he pouring his life out to say? Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's Luke 24 coming out again. To all nations, the message of repentance and forgiveness. Testifying to his evangelistic efforts before King Agrippa, chapter 26. Paul says there in verse 19, Therefore, O king Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. If you're with me here, I think it's fairly safe to conclude that repentance is a crucial aspect of the message of salvation in Christ. Repentance is a crucial aspect of the message of salvation in Christ. Peter said in his second epistle, "The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." The idea there is God has not come down in final judgment upon this earth because He is holding out patiently for sinners to respond to the gospel. We may ask, why doesn't God bring it to an end? Bring it to an end now. It's the grace and the mercy and the patience of God towards sinners which will endure until the last soul that God has chosen trusts Him as Savior. He is patient, wanting all to reach repentance. That is the goal of this time, of this age. Now, Sometimes we read of repentance alone in the text of Scripture. It just says repent. Other times we read repent and believe, and we see that on a number of occasions here. And sometimes we just read of faith. For instance, in the writings of John, he just speaks of believing and of faith. But as the message plays out in Scripture, it is clear that there is no repentance without saving faith, and there is no saving faith without repentance. The kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that is evidenced by repentance. Well, there is at this point, and and a lot of that is, I will admit, instructive, and that's important for us. But what does it mean? Where does it really come down to touch our lives? Really, at this point, there's a serious problem, isn't there, with this message of repentance, because there is a fundamental resistance to this message on the part of sinners. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, we don't need to turn there, but just remembering in your mind, when Adam and Eve violated God's law and became sinfully self-aware, And then they hear God walking in the garden. Where do we find them? Do we find them on their knees, repenting and asking forgiveness from God? We don't, do we? We find them hiding from God, hoping to escape detection. There is, think of it, no greater splendor and human joy than to walk in fellowship with God. That is our soul's joy. Adam and Eve basked in the glory of sweet fellowship with God in the garden. They knew this joy, and yet here they are under the power of sin, hiding from God. And when God confronts them with their sin, do they repent then? No, they immediately shift the blame for their sin onto others, which indicates they weren't only fearful of the judgment of God, They wanted in some respect to hide their sin because when God does confront them, it's not we thought we would be consumed on the spot and we feared you, but it's she did it. The serpent did it. God, it's you ultimately who's at fault. Now, we need to come to terms here again with the fact that we inherit Adam and Eve's sin. We inherit the natural tendency then to resist repentance. There isn't one person in this room today who doesn't. We have a pattern in our lives, I do and you do, of resisting repentance. It doesn't come naturally. We like to hide, we like to shift the blame, We like to explain sin away. We like, indeed, to enjoy it. A repentant spirit that readily admits, I am wrong, I am guilty of sin, and abandons evil immediately is unnatural. Wanting to avoid detection, wanting to shift the blame, we hold on to our sin, we defend it, we don't abandon it quickly, we enjoy it, we don't want to renounce it. There is pleasure in sin for a season, and we want that season to last as long as possible. We don't want to come to terms with our wrong. And God knows this. He knows this about us. He knows this is who we are. And there's a place that encapsulates his gracious fatherly counsel to us, and I'd like us to turn there to Proverbs chapter 28. God, in a sense, puts an arm around sinners here And he has a real heart-to-heart talk with us. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13 reads that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's notice the first half of that verse. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Prosper, ultimately, this speaks of prosperity before God, and there really is no other prosperity. So as God counsels us here and looks us in the eye, He says, in essence, if you're trying to hide sin, if you are unwilling to abandon a sin in which you are entangled, listen to me, this is not going to end well. On the other side of it, He who confesses and forsakes his sins will obtain mercy. Confess here is essentially synonymous with repentance. Confession is the expression of a repentant heart. It is a heart that turns from sin and admitting to God that our sin is sin and forsakes it. Not merely to admit it, but to admit it in the way that forsakes the sin. This is the evidence of genuine repentance. We witness that one's confession is genuine when there is a forsaking of sin. Now, if we do this, God says, we will obtain mercy. A Hebrew word always used of the emotive response of a superior to an inferior. Of a rescuer to a sufferer. Of a parent to a child. In other words, we have this word from God, when sinners humble themselves before him, God's heart is softened, and it reaches out in mercy. In light of this, we can assuredly then say, verse 14, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. This fear of the Lord in the Hebrews is literally a trembling It refers to, as Watke puts it, the fear of reverence, not of bondage, of caution, not of distrust, of diligence, not of despondency, but a fear of reverence toward God. A heart open to the promptings of the Lord. When you walk in the fear of God and thus abandon the shadowlands of sin, you will walk into the sunshine of God's blessing. So there's our choice. The pleasures of sin for a season, or the blessing of God who grants mercy. What do you want? The warning comes again to us at the end of verse 14, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So in the end, it's not simply the blessing of God on the one hand and the shorter pleasures of sin on the other. The shorter pleasures of sin we are guaranteed will end in calamity. That the word can be translated evil or misery or distress. This is where unrepentant sin leads us. Now let's think then, in application on two levels. First of all is repentance in the unbeliever, and it'd be good to have a lot more time on this, but let's try to hone our thoughts quickly. Unbelievers must repent of their sins in order to be saved. Unbelievers must repent of their sins in order to be saved. I believe this is a truth on which we must land And we must understand it well, and I'd like to clarify it in a moment, but let's think, first of all, what we see in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 and Luke 24 and verse 47, for instance. We've seen in these places it is God's agenda for sinners to repent, and it will be His agenda until His return. There is then a call to anyone among us. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, if you do not have confidence That your sins have been forgiven by God. There is this glorious and good news that Jesus Christ paid the penalty of your sin and rose from the dead in victory, in defeat of death and sin. But there is this call to you to repent, to turn from your sin, and to embrace this message of salvation in Christ. There must be a response on your part, an abandonment of the way of life on which you are now taking. Lost sinners who have no interest in abandoning their sin, no sorrow that it is their sin for which Christ died, simply have not understood the gospel. There is a gospel message which offers a ticket to heaven and really doesn't address sin. It's a gospel that misses the whole point of why Jesus died. That's no ticket to anywhere. Nowhere good. The good news is a message of deliverance from the wrath of God. If you have no interest in abandoning that from which Jesus has come to deliver you, you do not really want to be saved. And you won't be. You'll be left to where hardened hearts take people, to the judgment seat of Christ. Think of it in these terms. You're, You're camping in the boundary waters. You're... All alone there. And there's a lightning strike. A fire breaks out. You run this way and you run that way, but the wind is blowing and the fire envelops you. You're surrounded by burning forest. There's no way through. But you hear the sound of a chopper above And a rope is dropped down with a seat on it and a harness. And if you will get in that seat, you will be reeled up into the chopper and taken away to safety. Trusting the chopper to save you is, in that moment, inherently a decision to abandon the forest floor. Now you may not think a whole lot about it. You got one option here. And that's to get in the chair and to go. If you think the chopper will save you while you remain on the forest floor, you really not assess the situation at all. It's insanity. Of course, all we would do is jump in the seat and be lifted to safety. In like manner, a sinner cannot flee the wrath of God while remaining comfortable on the path of divine destruction. It's illogical. So we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, the Thessalonian believers turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's one move. As you embrace the gospel and turn to it and receive the forgiveness of sins, or in this analogy, as you get into the chair and are lifted up, you are thereby abandoning the fire. And you're abandoning the sin that sets you up for judgment. Unbelievers must repent of their sins in order to be saved. But here we must offer caution. And that is that repentance is a response of the heart, not a change of life. It is a response of the heart, not a change of life. I think Louis Burkhoff puts this very well. According to Scripture, repentance is holy, an inward act, and should not be confounded with the change of life that proceeds from it, and indeed it does. Remember the message, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Confession of sin and reparation of wrongs are fruits of repentance. There is a danger here for those who share the gospel of Christ, who proclaim it and witness it. For the evangelist, the danger is to focus on repentance in such a way that the spotlight of attention is steered away from the Savior and is steered onto the sinner's response. Now indeed, there must be a response. There must be repentance. There must be a turn from sin. We've been saying this and establishing this, but we should so preach Christ crucified that the concept of repentance is clear, even if the word is not used. And again, I go back to the Apostle John, who does not favor the word repentance. He prefers the positive words of believe and faith. And by positive, I don't mean that they're superior. I just mean he chooses that side of the coin. And when you see the uh, places where the gospel of Christ is proclaimed, he just speaks of belief. But he uses belief in such a way that repentance is understood to be part of that belief. Repentance is not, then, a magical word that we must include in every proclamation of the gospel. There are people all over the place, I know a good number of them, who have been under preaching that said, if you did not consciously repent of your sin, and really the understanding is, if you did not think of the word repentance, and did not have that fully in your concept, when you were saved, you weren't really saved. And And it creates all kinds of consternation on people's parts to do what? Not to look to Christ as Savior, but to look back at what I did once. Did I repent sufficiently? Did I under- I def- didn't, Nobody ever used the word repentance, so I can't possibly be saved. And the whole focus goes on me and what I've accomplished and what I have done. It's not a magical word that must be used in every presentation of the gospel. Again, just read the gospel of John to see that. If we use the term repentance, on the other hand, we must be careful to distinguish repentance from self-reformation. This is what Berkhoff is aiming at here. Confession of sin and reparation of wrongs are the fruits of repentance. Genuine repentance will show itself in a changed life. But responding to the gospel is not a call to change your life so that you are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to be on the burning floor of the forest and saying, I need to be rescued. I need to turn from the way that I'm taking. My sin is taking me down. Repentance is not self-reformation or quitting every sinful habit in order to make oneself worthy of the love of God, and we must be cautious on that point. Putting these both together, unbelievers must repent of their sin in order to be saved. But repentance is a response of the heart, not a change of life, and not some magical word. Repentance in the believer. Now, there's some here who would stop and say it's got nothing to do with believers. Repentance is a response of the unbeliever to the gospel, and I would differ with that profoundly. Profoundly. Repentance is not only for unbelievers. It is to be a habitual response of believers to their sin. Epitomized, perhaps, in the moment that we turn to the Gospel. But nonetheless, we too must confess and abandon sin on a daily basis, trusting in what? Trusting in the Gospel of Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection as the basis of our forgiveness as God's children. So I would say it just in, in brief bullet points here that born-again believers continue to sin. We know this. First John 1 John 1.8 says it very pointedly that we better believe it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we do sin. Born-again believers, secondly, who sin, retain their status as God's children. We're not lost when we sin. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is through receiving Christ in repentant faith, turning from our idolatry and sin, that we become the children of God, not through performance. Albeit the fruits of repentance should show themselves in the life of God's children, we are not kicked out of the family by the mercy of God when we sin. When born-again believers sin, they disrupt their relationship with God and bring displeasure to their heavenly Father's heart. This is the issue, by God's grace, that we want to begin to really tackle in the weeks ahead. How does a believer fight sin? How do we look at it in our daily life? We must first talk about rescue from it before we can come to understand how to fight it and how to deal with it. I want to sit down, by God's grace, in the next couple of weeks in the sixth chapter of Romans. So read it this week. Prepare for it. Think about it. Meditate on it. And we, by His grace, will be encouraged by it. But, put it again in this way, we, our relationship with God our Father is disrupted by sin. It's compromised by sin. And so, believers who sin must repent. 1 John 1.9 uses the word confess, which is a narrower term, but it reflects repentance. Revelation 3 and verse 19 speaks clearly to believers, calling them to repent. It is a biblical concept. The Apostle John calling the Laodicean church to this response. Repentance is not a singular act resulting in salvation, but an attitude that we should carry with us to the grave. So believers then, on a negative point, who persist in unrepentant sin indicate that they are not born again. If there is, and I have believers here in quotes, as the Apostle John would use the term, but if there is a persistence in unrepentant sin that characterizes an individual's life, there is not an attitude of repentance, a willingness to change the heart attitude towards sin and toward God, there is evidence of one who is not born again. This, again, putting this together with the first point, born-again believers continue to sin. But if there is a persistent, unrepentant response to sin that characterizes a person's life, it is evidence of lostness. Time fails us to stop here long, but I want to close this with the thought that this is a joyful theme. It is a theme that is filled with joy and thanksgiving. Jesus taught us, Luke 15, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He is telling us there, let me open a window into the gates of heaven and let you know what it's like there. What it's like there is that when a sinner repents, there is joy. There is rejoicing. Sometimes when we repent, there's a lot of sorrow because it's hard to come to terms with our sin, but in heaven, it's not that way. This is what the grace and the mercy of God is intended to accomplish, turning the hearts of sinners away from their sin and leading them to embrace the message of grace in Christ. And where there is genuine repentance in our hearts, when our hearts are humbled to turn away from sin in order to obey God, when my soul is reoriented to renounce sin and turn in sorrow to God for grace, I will know joy as well. There is no joy in sin. There is pleasure in it for a season, but there's no joy in it. There's no lasting peace with God and satisfaction of heart. But when I repent, that joy comes. We could all list examples, I'm sure. And I trust that you can list as one example today the time when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you have not done that, stop resisting. Abandon the forest floor and come into the saving grace of Christ today. Repent and be forgiven. For those of us who know the Lord as Savior, there is from that point many opportunities to repent of our sin. And this is a call to us to face ourselves, to look in the mirror. For me to ask you as a preacher, as I ask myself in my own heart, are you harboring sin? Is there a battle with sin that is taking place right now in your life? You know what it is. The conviction of the Spirit troubles your soul at this very moment. You can list it, you can see it, you know what it is there is only one response to it. And that is that on the basis of the mercy of God, that you turn from it, abandon it, leave it, and embrace the forgiveness of God in Christ. In the gospel of Christ, we enter into a position where there is now no condemnation. But there is no immediate joy in our life as a Christian if we're holding on to the sin from which God has saved us. Let it go. Turn your back and embrace the forgiveness in Jesus and joy will return. And his blessing, he says, will rest on your head. Turn today. We need to come as sinners, poor and needy and seeking the grace that he will abundantly provide. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise for who you are and for the salvation in our Savior. May we rejoice in it now as we come before you as sinners and sing for joy to the Lord or as a call for salvation. It is through Christ that I pray. Amen.